1968, the Rolling Stones released a song called Sympathy for the Devil. The song is written from the point of view of the devil, and in that song he makes his case through the mouth of Mick Jagger. The devil makes his case for why we should have some sympathy for him. To have sympathy with someone is to see things their way. It's to share their point of view. It's to be on side with their emotions and feelings. To have sympathy for someone is to feel loyal to them. It's to side with them. Now, I would imagine not too many of us here this morning would say that we have sympathy for the devil. A far more relevant question for us is, do we have sympathy for God? Not meaning, do we feel sorry for Him? Meaning, do we have loyalty to Him? Are we more loyal to God than we are to sin? Do we side with God against this sinful world? Or, if we're honest, does our sympathy lie with sin? Does it lie with this world that chooses sin instead of God? When we read Scripture, do we find ourselves thinking God takes things maybe a bit too seriously? That He's not quite fair? Deep down, whose side are we on? We can keep that question in mind as we turn back to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 5. If you're using a green church Bible, it's page 690, or the larger print Bible, uh, 1066, Isaiah chapter 5. The first five chapters of Isaiah are really the preface to the book. They're the introduction. These five chapters set out the situation that Isaiah is going to minister into. Then in chapter 6, we hear about his call to ministry. In chapter 6, he is commissioned to speak and minister in the situation we're hearing about. And in chapter 7, we see Isaiah then finally interacting with the king of Judah. So chapter 5 is the conclusion to the preface or the conclusion to the introduction. And it shows us something very significant about Isaiah himself. It shows us also something important about God and about the sin some of us might have a wee bit of sympathy for. So let's turn to Isaiah 5 and we're going to read the whole chapter. Isaiah says in chapter 5 verse 1, I will sing... For the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? 
Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and tambourines and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of His hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by His justice, and the Holy God will be proved holy by His righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let Him hasten to His work so that we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles, no, not one slumbers or sleeps. 
Not a belt is loosened at the waist, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, their chariot wheels like a whirlwind, their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there's only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. This is God's Word. And it takes the form of a song for the beloved. In the first seven verses, what we find is, a lover of God sings of the delight and disappointment of God. The first thing we read in this chapter is very striking. In verse 1, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. The I here is Isaiah himself. He's the one who's going to sing the song. And he is singing for, he says, the one I love. Or in the next line of verse 1, my loved one. Another way to translate that would be to say, my beloved. It's a very intimate term. It's a term of passionate love. It's used mostly in the context of love between a husband and wife. For example, the word is used 33 times in the Song of Songs in the Old Testament. The Song of Songs is actually the book that comes just before Isaiah in our Bibles. All the way through that book, the lady speaks about her beloved. How handsome you are, my beloved. My beloved is mine and I am his. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. My beloved is a term of intimacy. And after reading the way it's used in the Song of Songs, you and I might hesitate to use that word outside of a marriage relationship. It's so intimate. But here Isaiah is using the word, and who is he using it for? Well, it's not for his wife. We'll find out later he does have a wife, but he's not speaking about her here. It becomes clear very quickly in this passage, Isaiah's beloved is God, the Lord, the God of Israel. So the first thing we learn about Isaiah in this book is that he is a passionate lover of God. Yes, Isaiah has love and compassion for his people, the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, he wants to see them turn to God and be delivered from their sin delivered from the judgment that's coming on their sin. Yes, Isaiah loves his people. But Isaiah's first love, his beloved, is God. In this big book, Isaiah speaks the way he does. He delivers the messages he does because God is his beloved. And so as much as Isaiah loves his people... His greatest sympathy is with his beloved. Isaiah is fully in accord with the perspective and the feelings and the cause of God. Isaiah is in go on God's side. He's fully on God's side. 
And to those of us who are Christians this morning, I would suggest this is something you and I need to give careful consideration to. We claim to be the people of God, but do we love Him? Is He our first love? Do we take His side against this world that defies Him? Do our sympathies lie fully with God, our beloved? Because ultimately, we will not be able to live faithfully for God in this world unless He is increasingly our beloved. Not just our Savior, not just our Lord, but our beloved. Isaiah chapter 4 ended with just a tiny glimpse of the future for God's people. It was a future of security and significance in God's presence. And that future reality, if you remember back a couple of weeks, that future reality was pictured as a marriage chamber. That's what the word canopy signifies at the end of chapter 4. That is the future for God's people, an eternal intimacy with God. That intimacy can best be described in terms of a marriage. God the groom with his people the bride. And now, immediately after that glimpse of the future at the end of chapter 4, here, in the first verse of chapter 5, Isaiah is referring to God as his beloved. Isaiah is ready for the eternal marriage that's coming. Are we ready? The book of Deuteronomy called God's people to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And as we do that, as we begin to love Him and as we grow in our love for Him, our whole perspective here and now will increasingly be in accord with our beloved's perspective. We will increasingly look at things from His perspective. Our sympathies will increasingly lie with Him. His Word will increasingly be the Word we agree with. How do we develop love for God, our beloved? Well, a place for us to start is by paying attention to this song of the vineyard that we find in Isaiah 5. It's a song of deep sympathy with God. It's a song that begins by speaking about the love and devotion God has shown to His people. Look again at verse 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about His vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. A few verses further on, uh, down in verse 7, we learn the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines He delighted in. So this is not about a literal vineyard. This is a picture of God's love and care for His people. If we read verses 1 and 2 with that understanding, what we're being told is, God set the nation of Israel and the people of Judah up for every success. He put them in a wonderful position to produce good fruit. 
He primed them in every possible way for a bumper harvest of good lives, faithful lives, lives full of justice and righteousness. No effort was spared on setting them up for that kind of success. God did not skimp in any way. He not only prepared the ground, he not only planted the choicest vines, he also built a watchtower, we're told. That indicates he was intending to live there permanently. He was intending to be a constant guard over his vineyard. Verse 5 also mentions a hedge and a wall around the vineyard. It was safe, it was secure. Verse 2 mentions that God cut out a wine press. He was ready so that none of the good fruit would be wasted when it came. What's being described here is careful, diligent preparation. Everything was put in place for a harvest of rich, luscious grapes, the kind that make the very best wine. And the meaning of that picture is God delivered His people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt, He gave them his instruction, his law, so they could live wisely and well. He gave them a priesthood to lead them in true worship. He gave them a monarchy to lead them in true obedience. And all of this in a great place, a land of their own where their enemies had been dealt with. They had peace to follow God and to live fruitful lives in obedience and good works. The first two sentences of verse 2 are summarizing vast sections of the Old Testament. The history of Israel which shows God's marvelous deeds on behalf of His people. So in verse 7 says, God delighted in His people. We cannot argue with that. His delight in His people led Him to show wonderful devotion to them. Diligence in providing for them and preparing them for every success. If you and I want to develop love for God, we consider His love for us. His love for His people throughout the generations. And the end of verse 2 says, God set all of this up and then He looked for a crop of good grapes from his vineyard. It's actually just a little bit stronger than that. It says he looked eagerly for those good grapes. But what happened? Well, we're told his vineyard yielded only bad fruit. All the conditions were there for sweet, luscious fruit, but all that came was rotten, bitter fruit, literally stinking fruit. And the end of verse 7 translates that picture into concrete terms. What is that stinking fruit? Well, verse 7 says, The Lord looked for justice. That's good fruit. But he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness. That's good fruit. But he heard cries of distress. One writer explains what those terms mean for us. Justice is the righting of wrongs, while bloodshed is the inflicting of wrongs. Righteousness is right living and right relationships, while to cry indicates wrong relationships and the anguish of the oppressed. 
Israel was set up perfectly to produce good fruit, justice and righteousness, but she produced rotten fruit, fruit that stank, the inflicting of wrongs, wrong relationships, and the anguish of the oppressed. And let's be clear, it wasn't just Israel. Go back to the opening chapters of the Bible, and what do we find? We find God setting humanity up for every success. The Garden of Eden was a vineyard plus. Its potential fruitfulness wasn't limited to grapes. It was full of all kinds of trees. And in that ideal environment, humanity was to be fruitful, Genesis says. Yes, fruitful in terms of producing children, but fruitful in obedience as well. Fruitful in good deeds. But what did Adam and Eve produce? They produced disobedience. Rotten fruit. And their offspring were not long in producing oppression and bloodshed. As Cain killed his brother Abel. So when you and I hear about God's judgment on evil, maybe we have some thoughts of sympathy for evil and those who do evil. But when we begin to understand the incredible love and care our beloved has poured out on his creation, when we begin to appreciate how he spared no effort to set us up to produce good fruit, the more that we grasp the loving care of our beloved, the more we begin to understand his heart, the more we begin to share his heart, then the less sympathy we'll feel for the rotten, stinking fruit that we human beings produce. And the more we will agree, God has every right to tear down his vineyard and make it a wasteland. Here in Isaiah 5, that is what he threatens to do in verses 5 and 6. At this point, it is just a threat. These words are intended to call the people to repentance. Before God makes his vineyard a wasteland, And realizing that this is a call to repentance, that helps us make sense of the rest of chapter 5. It sets out the disappointment of those who delight in bad fruit. That disappointment needs to be set out because, as we all know, what the Bible describes as bad fruit usually looks to you and me like pretty attractive fruit. None of us would be tempted to sin if sin didn't seem like a luscious prospect in some way. Unless sin promised to be sweet and tasty and satisfying, who would do it? But verses 8 to 30 show us the disappointment that comes to those who delight in bad fruit. It's set out, you'll have noticed, in a series of six woes. Verse 8, 11, 18, 20, 21, and 22. Now, we don't tend to use the word woe, but it's a useful word because it's a double-sided word. It is both a denunciation and it's a word of deep sorrow. God takes no pleasure in pronouncing these six woes. 
And for his part, Isaiah takes no pleasure in passing them on. When we get to chapter 6 next week, hopefully, there we will hear Isaiah pronouncing a seventh woe on himself. Woe to me, he says. So Isaiah is not self-righteous. He's not holier than thou. Not at all. Isaiah loves his beloved. And that leads him to denounce himself when he sins. So these woes are strong and they are sorrowful at the same time. Both on God's part and on the part of his messenger Isaiah. And the deeper you and I go in sympathy with our beloved, the more we will share both his hatred of sin and his sorrow over it. Getting angry about sin is only half of sharing the heart of our beloved. There must be sorrow over it as well. We said there are six woes in this chapter. They group together into a set of two and then a set of four. The first two woes show this. Living to accumulate and indulge leads to loss. The bad fruit in these verses is a life lived for accumulation and indulgence. And the disappointment all of that leads to is simply loss. Loss of all the stuff we've tried to get and to hold on to, whether it's stuff or satisfaction. Look how that is sketched out beginning in verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. When God originally gave the Israelites their land, He allocated it carefully, specifically. He gave a portion for each of the twelve tribes, and within that, He gave smaller portions for clans within each tribe, and then smaller portions again for families within each clan. And those allocations of land were supposed to be in perpetuity. So everyone would have a place. So their children would have a place. But what verse 8 is describing is the kind of lust for accumulation that resulted in people buying up more and more adjoining properties. Until some people had huge estates and others were left with nothing. Now today, you and I do not need to be educated about a lust for accumulation, do we? It is the air we breathe every day of our lives. Don't be satisfied with what you've got, we're told. Keep grasping for more and more and more. But in verse 9, God says, if you live that way, you will be disappointed. The Lord Almighty, Isaiah says, has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Apparently, those are very pathetic yields. And the point is, if you live to accumulate 
you will not get the wonderful returns you hoped for. And in the end, you'll have nothing. When we looked at chapter 4, we heard a very strong warning for the women of Jerusalem who were living for outward beauty and appearances. And we said then, the Bible is not against outward beauty, but it is strongly against living for outward beauty as if it's all there is to live for. And the point here is very similar. Verse 9 is not telling us it's wrong to have a nice house. It is telling us if we live to get that nice house, if we elbow others out of the way to get it, and if we then start planning for the next even bigger and even better house, then we are heading for disappointment. Because sooner or later, our attempts to accumulate will fail and we'll be left with nothing. Verse 11 highlights something else. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and tambourines and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of His hands. The perfect picture of indulgence is the picture of a wild party that doesn't stop. Where I grew up, we called it going on the tear. Maybe you'd call it a bender. Drinks early in the morning, drinks late into the night with plenty of music, and of course, more drinks. Here in Britain, we love a bit of this giving free rein to our appetites, indulging ourselves, not just with alcohol, but with food, with pornography, gambling, drugs, all those things. But alcohol is a big favorite to the degree that in 2022, alcohol deaths in the UK hit a record high. Now, knowing many of you, I don't think too many of you are prone to go on regular banders. But it is worth pausing and taking the opportunity to ask ourselves, how is your relationship to alcohol? Is it getting a grip on your life? Slowly? Maybe not so slowly? Have you noticed a bit of a creep in your indulgence in that area that you're trying to ignore or excuse? Is a little becoming a bit more than a little? Is indulgence making you a slave? Are you looking to indulgence to give you something that only God can give you? Do you need to make some changes? Do you need to ask for help? Not long ago when we looked at the book of Colossians, we notice the Bible does not teach that teetotalism puts us on a higher spiritual level. It does not tell us that complete abstinence brings us closer to God. But if we find ourselves getting a bit defensive about our right to indulgence when it comes to alcohol, 
If we get like that, we may want to ask ourselves, am I looking to alcohol to give me more than it can give me? Am I looking to it for a sense of well-being or peace or joy? The things that only God can give me. These verses tell us people who refuse to rein in their appetites find that in the end, death has the biggest appetite of all. Look at that in verse 14. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. The point is, none of us can drink death under the table. Let's make sure we understand the point here. God gave us a good world full of good things to enjoy. Let's not forget this chapter opened with a picture of what? God cultivating a vineyard and setting up a wine press. In fact, throughout Scripture, fine wine is used as a picture of the good things God has for His people. You find that again and again. But in all of those pictures, the good things are not the goal. They are not the solution. They are not the Savior. They are not what actually satisfies. The Savior is God Himself. He is the Beloved who truly satisfies us. But here, the bad fruit that's being pictured is the attitude that looks to God's gifts to satisfy us. It gorges on those good things in a mad effort to get from them what they simply cannot give us. When our throat or our stomach become our God, in fact, when any bodily appetite becomes our God, then we are on our way to sliding down the throat and into the stomach of death. That was the first two woes. The remaining four woes show us this. Rejecting God's wisdom leads to decay and defeat. Have a look again at verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten to his work so that we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. The point here is this. When we make ourselves the final authority instead of God, then we end up inevitably challenging God to prove himself to us. In the style of verse 19, hurry up and explain yourself to us, God. You need to work harder at convincing us you're right. And of course, when that is our attitude, we've already decided that we know better than God. And so, we end up substituting our own wisdom for God's wisdom. And the result of that tends to be, we come up with a morality that is not 
similar to God's, but is in fact the precise opposite of God's. In verse 20, we call evil good and good evil, etc. In other words, when we come to rely on our own wisdom, we end up switching the labels on sin and goodness. We announce that what used to be called sin is now called good. It's normal. And we, what used to be called good and normal is now despicable, abnormal, sinful. In Isaiah's day, the city of Jerusalem was doing that. They were switching the labels on evil and good. Do you think it might be going on today as well? Isn't it true that increasingly in our society, the people who hold to God's blueprint for sex are now seen as the immoral ones? They're the ones living in darkness. They're the ones with an evil set of views that really shouldn't be tolerated in our society today. And those who tear up God's blueprint for sex are the good ones. They're the ones living in the light. What is the result of this? What's the result of rejecting God's wisdom and substituting our own? Our passage tells us the result is decay and defeat. Look at verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. According to these verses, there is a double source for this decay and defeat. What I mean is, yes, God's judgment comes on this rotten fruit. That's clear. But what we're also being shown is, Simply rejecting God's instruction leads to decay all by itself. In the middle of verse 24, their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. To reject God's wisdom in favor of our own wisdom is to choose self-destruction. Things will go to pot. There's a sense in which that happens even without God's intervention in judgment. It just follows as a matter of course. But yes, that is not the whole picture. There is God's active intervention in judgment as well. Verse 25 mentions the mountains shaking and dead bodies in the streets. That is probably referring to an earthquake that happened during the reign of King Uzziah. And if that's the case, it would explain the end of verse 25. Yet for all this, the Lord's anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. In other words, the earthquake has already happened. 
The people of Jerusalem should recognize the earthquake as a visitation of God's judgment on their rotten fruit. But as bad as it was, Isaiah is saying, that was not the end of God's judgment. The earthquake that they'd lived through probably was a warning. It was a shot across the bows. God's hand of judgment has not been lowered. It's still ready to act again. If the people of Jerusalem and Judah won't wake up and run to God in repentance, there will be greater judgment in the future. What form will that judgment take? Well, verses 26 to 30 give the first mention in the book of a foreign invader. He will be summoned by God to bring God's judgment on Jerusalem and Judah. We'll hear much more about that later in the book, but for now, what we need to know is this is an urgent call for Jerusalem and Judah to turn to God before it's too late, before their bad fruit brings its terrible, bitter reward. Now, when we read on in the Old Testament, we find that Jerusalem and Judah did not turn from their sin. The terrible judgment did come. The vineyard of God described in this chapter was made into a wasteland. The vines were destroyed. But the story of God's vineyard was not over. Because in the New Testament, we find Jesus Christ making this announcement. We read it earlier this morning. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the gardener. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus calls himself the true vine. Well, true in contrast to what? The vine we read about in Isaiah chapter 5. The people of Judah and Jerusalem who proved to be a false vine. For all eternity, Jesus was the delight of God the Father. Receiving his Father's blessing and love. And in response, Jesus, the true vine, came to this earth and he produced good fruit. He produced the best fruit. Perfect obedience, perfect justice, perfect righteousness in all that he did and said. God looks at his son Jesus and he sees the wonderful fruit that he looked eagerly for but did not find in Judah and Jerusalem. He finds it in the life of his son, Jesus. The father was truly the beloved of his son, Jesus. Jesus loved the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and strength. Jesus was able to say that he delighted to do his father's will. He was fully on side with his father. And how did the father refer to Jesus? The New Testament tells us that Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration, the Father announced 
publicly, this is my beloved Son. The Father and the Son share a relationship of perfect love. And what does Jesus tell us in John 15? He tells us that you and I are invited into that relationship of perfect love. By ourselves, we cannot produce good fruit. We cannot love. We cannot do justice and righteousness. By ourselves, we produce the opposite. Rotten fruit. But when we come to Jesus, seeking God's forgiveness through Him, trusting in His death on the cross to pay for our sin, when we come to Him as our Savior and our Lord and our Beloved, and Jesus says we are joined to Him. We become part of the true vine. When we trust in Jesus, we're coming on board with God's plans and purposes. We are siding with God against this world that rejects His beloved Son. And we begin to produce good fruit. Our lives begin to please God, something we could never do by ourselves. When we come to Jesus, the fruit of our lives is ultimately not rot and decay. It's not loss. In Christ, our works will not be swallowed up by the wide open jaws of death. Instead, we will produce fruit that will last, Jesus says in this same passage. Our lives will no longer smell of rot and death. They begin to smell of God's goodness and faithfulness. So as we close, let's allow this Old Testament song of the vineyard to point us to Jesus, the true vine. Let's learn to depend on Him. Let's trust God when God says that Jesus and only Jesus is the source of good fruit in our lives. Only in Him can our lives be pleasing to God. When we come to our beloved Father through Jesus, His beloved Son, we find ourselves part of something that will never decay. Never waste away or be swept away. Our final songs celebrate this promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's give thanks to him as we sing, My Jesus, my Savior, and then Cornerstone.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.